If nothing means nothing, then what's my purpose for living? Even Nietzsche couldn't deal with that. You know, the idea I heard R.C. Sproul say one time, I love it, he says, uh, if we came from the slime accidentally and we're going toward a, an eternity of oblivion, in other words, we're, we're just going to die and rot and decompose in the ground, right? So we start life with no purpose, we end life with no purpose, and we try to make some sense of it in between. In order to not just go absolutely crazy, you have to suppose there's a purpose for your life, right? And so what Nietzsche did was exactly that, and he created this Ubermensch, which is the Superman, which says that despite the fact that life has no purpose, you must live it with gusto as if it does. That's what... Um, by the way, you, you, that's one of those self-defeating arguments, right? Life has no purpose, but you must do this. I'm giving you a purpose even though life has no purpose. That's one of those self-defeating arguments. You go, well, is that your purpose or is that my purpose? Because you're giving me a purpose, but you're also telling me there is no purpose, right? Anyway, so if you have this, this guy going out and living a purpose, even though there is no purpose, he's living it for a cause that he creates himself. Now, you have Nazi Germany with... Adolf Hitler being that ubermensch. During that time, you have these theologians who are just trying to hold it together, and now they're being squelched by Nazi Germany, who's taken over all of Europe. Right? If they speak, they die. And so you'll hear Rich, uh, Christopher Hitchens made the comment several times that the Catholic Church was behind uh, Hitler, and they were doing deals with him and all that stuff. And that, and that may be true, but that deviated from Christianity. That's not what Christianity is about. And what Christianity did at that time was just to bail. They just said, I, I don't have answers for all these questions, and I'm, I'm bailing. Did you want to add something? Well, I say you see that in the church today, when you talk to somebody, you start discussing theology or philosophy, says, hey, just give me Jesus. You know, just, just give me, don't talk, let's just give me Jesus. And I, I, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Hey, I don't want to have an argument. I don't want to, I just... I want to know that Jesus, who, you know, uh, but really when I when I hear that from somebody, the first thing I do is I ask, okay, who's Jesus? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus of the Bible. Well, well, there's a Muslim Jesus, you know, in their Quran. The Mormons have a belief in, in Jesus. Which, which Jesus are we talking about? And why is that Jesus more important than this Jesus? So be careful when you, you think of those terms. Hey, just give me Jesus. Don't give me the facts. Don't give me science. Don't give me... Uh, theology, don't give me logic and all that, be careful because now you're on dangerous ground because the Jesus that you might think you believe in it may not be the real Jesus. You know, so it just kind of but it flows out of that thought of, right. well, you have your faith and I have my faith. It's like, well, either this one's true and this one's false, this one's true and that one's false, or they're both false. But they can't both be true, right? So, right, absolutely. Um, and that's that's where we're heading. Um, now, I, I said we're going to start biological evolution. This will be a lot shorter. I'm not going to spend uh, time talking about um, deviations among the species and fossil records and stuff like that. We win all of those arguments, too. But science has now, has now brought arguments to our door that win, and they win hands down. I mean, the discussion about evolution, though it is not filtered down to our schools yet, whether you know it or not, is over. I mean, it's done. There is no such a thing as Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian synthesis. It's, it's, no, it's an extinct idea. There are still some people grasping hold of it, but 
I'd be really surprised in 20 years if we're even teaching it anymore. And this is a good way. I had a conversation. I don't know if anybody's ever actually met one of these people, but I had a conversation recently with a devout communist and a devout atheist. Same guy. And I was like, wow, you're an interesting guy. Sit down. We got to talk. And he had talking points, uh, both political and religious, that, that he, he was ready to throw out these talking points, right? And I kept coming back to DNA, biological evolution, DNA. Um, because what I kept saying is, you know, we were talking about morality within politics. That's how I got started. And, I, and we're going to the moral argument, which will be right after this. And I said, well, what do you base that morality on? You know, you want politicians to have a certain morality. What's that morality based on? Well, it's based on the consent of the governed. Yeah, but the government is just a governed. That's us. That's just a bunch of people. And we can be wrong. We thought slavery was a good idea. We think abortion right now is a good idea. I mean, we, we, we've been wrong before. What says we're not wrong now when we say that this morality is right or wrong? And so we got to God, of course. And then he said, there is no God. In fact, his words to me was like, oh, you're one of those guys that believes fairy tales. And when I said to him, and I said, well, I, first of all, I said, why would you call it a fairy tale? And he went on to his little diatribe. And then I came back and I said to him, how do you get the first cell? And he went through the, the talking points. He's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. And he's also very good with words. He was a sales manager. And he went through the Darwin's Pond idea about how this, this radiation, instead of you know going, well, where'd you get the radiation? And, and where, all, all that, I said, okay, what's in that cell? And he said, what do you mean? I go, what is in that cell that helps the cell reproduce itself? And he said, what do you mean? I said, cellular mitosis, which is just a cell dividing. You probably remember that from high school biology. It's just a cell dividing off and making another cell exactly like it. It's governed by the information in DNA. That DNA is necessary for the cell to divide. Without the DNA, you never get another cell. Without the next cell, you never have a chance for the cell to mutate. If the cell can't mutate, it never evolves, right? The information has to precede the evolution. I asked him, where did the information come from? If you get that idea in your head, there is no biological chemist that can stand against you because there is no answer for this question other than a creator. There is no answer. All right, so I got a little bit off topic, but we're actually sort of on topic. So I may cover a little bit of what I've covered already as I read through this. This is the evolution biological evolution, that is, with which everyone is familiar. Here, given enough time, monkeys turn into people. There is no proof for this hypothesis, no good arguments, and there are many proofs and good arguments against this theory, but in the interest of time, rather than looking at fossil evidence uh, or discussing irreducible complexity, we will focus solely on DNA. A human body is made up of many parts. It has a liver, kidneys, skin, hair, etc., Every part of the body is made up of cells, and in those cells, among other things, are strands of DNA. The main role of DNA is long-term storage of information. And there is, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm still on the right, still going right. Let me just read this. There is no entity in the known universe, yeah, there it is. I'm on page 10. I just skipped over to page 11. Got my little puzzle piece is a nice quote to remember. 
There is no entity in the known universe that stores and processes more information more efficiently than DNA. Mankind has come a long way with digital storage. Uh, this is, I was talking to my wife about this just the other day. When we bought our first computer in 1989, and it had a, a hard drive in it about the size of uh, you know, a paperback novel. It was a 40 megabyte hard drive. <laughs> and today, with a little flash card about the size of my fingernail and my pinky, you can get a thousand times that, that amount of information. By the way, that was a bad to the bone computer at the time. Um, in the nucleus, nucleus of every single one of your cells, having a diameter of only one billionth of a millimeter, six feet of DNA is coiled and packed into a single molecule. Six feet. So in other words, if you unstrand the DNA, you get six feet and it's in something a billionth of a millimeter. That's how compact it is. Right, so you think about going from a 40 megabyte hard drive down to a thousand times, that's nothing in comparison. Um, a single molecule of DNA boasts 40 times the amount of information as a 25,000 page, 23 volume Encyclopedia Britannica. 40 times. So imagine that. If you have 23 volumes of encyclopedias, right, it's going to take up about this much room on the ground. If I put it here, now stay it right there, and you multiply that 40 times, and you go from wall to wall, it's probably going to be about this high. I'm going to be looking over it with my chin, right? That's how much information is in a single cell, in every one of your cells in your body. Now, um, we can approximate that information. This is, I remember when I first started hearing about that, I, I was like, well, how do, you, how do you make sense out of that? I mean, it's a cell. How do you correlate that with words on pages and pages on, you know, in, in an uh, encyclopedia. And the way you do it is in the cell, you have, in the cell you have, you've probably all seen the double helix, I'm not going to try to draw it, but you have this backbone, right? And on the backbone you have stuff like this. Or adazine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. These four com compounds called bases are in an order on the backbone of the cell. Now, that order, if it's changed, you die. Or, I mean, if it's changed slightly, you, you have a different color hair, or different color eyes, or something like that. But that order is necessary to make you who you are. And we have come to now understand how to read, believe it or not, the information in the cell. It's, there's a, something called the Human Genome Project where they're actually going through and studying the information just as if you, you, when you came along, you know, those guys came across the Rosetta Stone out in the middle of the desert and they were able to take that stone and go, oh my gosh, now we understand how to, because uh, there were three different languages on there and one of them were ancient uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. And because of the other languages, which we understood, like Sanskrit, they were able to go, oh, okay, this is the same thing as this. Now we can figure out what all this information here is in the hieroglyphs, right? Well, they started figuring this out, and they're going through it step by step by step by step, and they're actually reading this code. 
It's a language. And that's how you can correlate it with the information in encyclopedias. It's a language. Just like the language we speak. And we can actually now, I don't know how you speak that language, but we can actually read it. I can't, but other people can. Um, now, I believe I am on page 11. Okay. Let's go back to the example uh, from your trip to planet Mars. You've put on your suit, unlocked the seal on the craft, and you stepped out onto the surface of the red planet. But this time you do not see a supercomputer. Instead you see a sign and it says, Welcome to Mars. Breakfast is served at 9 sharp and tours start at 10.30. Right? You get the idea. Somebody's there. Somebody's been there. How do you know? Because you have a language there, right? And you have, you have something that is recognizable. And I think this is interesting to point out. Because people look at life or the universe differently than you look at something like you know, a written page. Why? Because as human beings, we're not familiar with how to create a cell. So we have no concept of it. It's difficult for us to grasp. But we know how to build a sign and write letters on it, right? So when we see that, we go, oh, well, somebody like me had to make that. We have no concept of how you would make a cell. But the information is inescapable. If information is there, there is an informer. And if there is a language, then there's certainly information, especially if we can read that language and know what it does. Imagine that. Now we know. Uh, so Bill Gates said, now Bill Gates, I, I don't know where his views are. Um, I know he's richer than me, and if anybody's got his private number, I'd like it. But human This is Bill Gates. Human DNA is like a computer program but far, far more advanced than any software man has ever created. Now, what's it take to create software? Language. A language. Code. Code. And where does that come from? Intelligence. Intelligence. People, right? Does anybody here ever write code? I guess probably both of you. You two? All right. Let me ask you this. Can you just write anything you want, or do you have a specific syntax you have uh, to follow? Syntax you have to use. Right, and if you if you put the semicolon in the wrong place, yeah, you can't run the program. Program doesn't work, right? <laughs> right. Now imagine your code just blew up one day, right? Your computer died, right? And 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 then out of that comes a better computer with better code, accidentally. Yeah, right? Right, to have a functional language, it's going to be impossible to not have somebody putting that language together. And I'm going to tell you, whatever code you're working on is not near as complex as that code is. Not even close. And that's what Bill Gates was saying. Richard Dawkins, again, uh, probably now since the death of Christopher Hitchens, he's the most famous extant uh, atheist. And his quote here, the machine code... Listen to that word he used. Machine code is ones and zeros. Machine code, that's binary code in the computer, right? We, we type in one kind of code and the, the computer converts it from ASCII or whatever we're typing in to machine code, which is ones and zeros, so the machine itself can understand it. He uses that term. And this is an atheist, by the way. The machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. 
Apart from the differences in jargon, the pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. He's an atheist. If we found a sign on planet Mars using a language that gives very simple instructions for a very simple task and immediately assume an intelligent creator, somebody's been there before, um, what should we assume when we see a sign in the cell? Using a language we now understand which gives very sophisticated instructions for a, very, for a series of very sophisticated tasks. Much more so than anything we've been able to develop with all the software engineers that we have today. Making millions of dollars, they still can't get to the level of the cell. Alright, almost done here, but I want to point out something. Now for the recorder, I'm holding up a whiteboard and I have some letters on it. Somebody read that to me. Intelligent design. Intelligent design. Now, can anybody tell me what force is holding these letters to this whiteboard? Magnetism. Magnetism. Now, do you think that the magnetism is equally imposed upon these letters? In other words, that they all have a pretty equal attraction to the board? Right? So, is there any way that the magnetism of this board could have caused the sequence of these letters? No. Right. So, right, so, I mean, the medium, in this case, this whiteboard, has no effect on the way these words are ordered. Right? The same is true in the cell. You know, instead of having this, we have order. We have something we can read. And the backbone, this chemical bond that the A's, T's, C's, and G's attach to, is equal all the way across the board. There's nothing. Now, I say this because for a long time, that's what they thought. They thought that there were chemical, chemical attractions to the specific bases, the A's, the T's, the C's, and the G's, that attracted them in a certain sequence. And because of that, we have information. What we now know is this is equal, just like the magnetism on the board. There's nothing that attracts these to this sequence. This information, then, is a pattern that comes from somewhere else. It is foreign to the medium. It is foreign to this backboard, or the back, you know, the, the, uh, the whatever it's called. It's foreign to that. So that is specified complexity. Remember we were talking about Mount Rushmore? You see the, the different shapes on the rock? And they're, they're complex, but it's not specified. All of a sudden when you see shapes that look like people's faces or that look like a specific president, you infer design because you have to. There's no other explanation for it. Well, so how is it that you could possibly not infer design when you get to the cell and you find a language, a language that's very sophisticated, that's not explained by the medium. Let's see, I don't have any, information requires an informer at the bottom. That's all I've got. Now, we're almost done. Hang with me. I know it's a lot of information to take in. Natural selection, at the top of your page in the Neo-Darwinian synthesis is purported to be a force at work within nature which chooses among DNA mutations for a functional advantage. That's kind of complex sounding, but 
the idea is natural selection is just the name they give this, this apparent law in nature that the strong survive, right? They don't believe in a, well, some of them may uh, believe in this force called natural selection, but I, I think generally they would say, well, we just believe it's the way things work. The strong survive. Now, their idea, and I talked about this just a minute ago, but I'm going to give you a graphic of it now so you'll have, a, have something to look at. Natural selection says that here's a cell, and inside the cell is this double helix structure that's DNA, and this DNA has information in it, right? And when this cell gets ready to duplicate itself, which is called cellular mitosis, creates another cell that is identical. Now we actually know a lot about how this works. You have, you have these proteins that come in here and they split apart the double helix structure. They look at all the A's, T's, C's, and G's. They create something called messenger RNA. They, or messenger RNA creates a, a series of amino acids that group these proteins together and they create another DNA strand just exactly like this. Then the cell splits off and you have two identical awful drawing, but you have two identical cells now. Now what the evolutionists would say is that between here and here, when this happens over and over and over again, for billions of years, there are mutations that occur. It's just life. You know, it's the second law of thermodynamics. Things break down. They don't always go right. You have weeds in your yard. Eventually, if you don't have them now, you will have gray hair. Just the way things go. Well, when these mutations occur, some of, some of them are functionally advantageous. In other words, they're good for the organism. So in other words, this organism becomes stronger because of these mutations, which goes against everything we know in physics, by the way. And some of them make the, the cell weaker. Now, the ones that are weaker die off. That's natural selection. The ones that are stronger stay. And these mutations then become the norm. They become normal, right? And then this will mutate again and again and again. And think about it. If everything is supposed to, this is physics. Now, this is proven. If everything is supposed to go from order to disorder and break down, we are violating the very laws of physics with evolution. But that's what natural selection is. It's saying that these mutations over eons will develop a stronger organism. Now, problem is, <laughs> this is a big problem for an evolutionist. This can't happen until you already have the DNA in the cell. There can be no mutation until the DNA exists, right? So it can't evolve without the DNA. The DNA has to pre-exist the evolution. The DNA has information in it. Where did the information come from? And that's what you got to get in your head because that absolutely kills evolution. There's no argument for evolution, biological evolution. Once you realize that there's information in the cell that precedes the evolution. And there's no explanation for that information. Last thing on evolution that is pertaining to this. What if... Now evolution is the idea that, you know, fish turn into frogs and frogs turn into squirrels and squirrels turn into rabbits and rabbits turn into monkeys and monkeys turn into humans, right? That's called macroevolution. You go from one species to the next. What if that's not possible 
from mutations in the DNA. We now know that it is not. It's a fact. What has been for years called junk DNA, we thought it was junk because it doesn't code for protein, which is what all your hereditary DNA does that tells you what your skin color is going to be and what hair color you have, all that stuff. We thought all this other DNA was actually evidence for uh, evolution instead of design because you have all this stuff left over. Now, what kind of designer would create such a junky mess to have all this stuff left over? So we called it junk DNA. What we now know is that in the junk DNA are body plans. That's the thing that separates you from a spider or a giraffe. That does not come from here. So you can mutate this all you want without respect to time. It just doesn't matter because DNA is the wrong tool for the job. You cannot get macroevolution from DNA. Now you can get microevolution. You can get uh, and my wife and myself might have a child and our genes mix and you're not going to get a giraffe when we have a child but you may get a child with different color hair than I have right that's microevolution and you may you know over years our, our children may get taller they may get shorter depending on how we come together as couples you know if I have a daughter who's 5'2 and she marries a boy who's 5'2 then their child is likely to be shorter than I am which would be sad for him because I'm not very tall so microevolution is true, uh, and it's explained within the DNA of the cell. But macroevolution is not. And, and I'm telling you this, if you can keep this in mind, this is, this is solved. It's done. This is cutting-edge science. And those who are actually in the know, now I'm not talking about those who just got through high school biology that sound like they know what they're talking about. I'm talking about people who are actually keeping up with the science that's occurring today because it's just like the technologies. In fact, we're using technology to do science now. It just keeps evolving. It's sort of a strange word to use right there, but it's evolving at an exponential rate. <laughs> it's occurring so fast, it's hard to keep up with. And this is cutting edge, and this absolutely proves evolution is false. And so the last thing we're going to talk about and before I go there, actually, uh, is the moral argument. Before I go there, I want to sum up what we've done. By the way, at the bottom of that page, um, the same resources we had before with one edition, Signature in the Cell, that's Dr. Stephen Meyer. I am greatly indebted to him for the information that I have, but I will say to you that that is uh, heavy reading. 700 pages, and it's highly technical. Well, I say that. It, it's technical enough for the person who's really into it. Uh, it's also layman enough to where you can read it. You may have to look up some words here and there, but you can do it if you want to do it. I throw that out there just for those who, who may want to go deeper. Um, but what I want to do is I want to sum up here what we've covered. And, and the moral argument, which I'm going to touch on, is very quick. But what we've covered is something is eternal. It's either the universe or God. The universe we've proven is not eternal. Therefore, it's got to be God. We've proven that there's design in the heavens and in your body. If there's design, there has to be a designer. You have evidence in here which is... I, I, didn't, I didn't put any of the stuff on here that people are arguing about. I put only the stuff on here that even the atheists agree on. Right? This is called the minimal facts method. This right here proves the existence of a creator without going any further and you're not relying on the scriptures right and the reason you're not doing that 
It's because when you get involved with someone who's not a Christian, you start quoting the Bible to them, they go, well, that's your Bible. Of course it says that. Oh, okay, well, what would you like to use? Would you like to use science? Because that has become the god of this culture today. That's where we get absolute truth now, science. Let's go to the science. See what the science says. Because the science says we have a creator. If we have a creator, we're accountable. And in what sense are we accountable? This is the moral argument. I, I was gonna. I, God reached down from heaven last night and crushed my computer. So I, and I was really tired and I didn't have time to fix it. So I didn't get to bring some of the stuff that I was planning on. Have any of you ever seen the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith? One, you people need to watch some movies. There's some good stuff out there if you just know what to wade through. Okay, I Am Legend starts off. It's really cool. It, and Will Smith is like, he thinks at this point, the last man alive on planet Earth. The, uh, this, this virus has killed everybody off. And he was trying to cure the virus. And the only people left now, besides him, aren't really people anymore. They're mutants, right? So all the normal people in his mind are dead. And then there's a bunch of mutants around there. And he's getting really lonely. And he's still, he's a, he's a biochemist and he's trying to create the serum so he can heal all these people right out there. These people are like monsters and they hide in the day in the dark. So he's the only human, right, that's human, still alive. The movie starts out with him flying down the streets, right, and, a, and, and at this time the, the Ford Mustang was brand new, the new one. And it's cool. It's just flying down the streets and you're seeing, I think it's New York. You're seeing a, a, a completely uh, abandoned New York, if it is New York. And grass is growing up through the streets. And I mean, it doesn't look like any city that you've ever been in before because there's nobody there, right? There are deer and lions running through the city. I guess they escape from zoos, right? And he's flying through the streets. I want to ask you, in the process of flying down the streets, he probably past some speed limit signs. And those speed limit signs were intended to restrict his speed as he's driving down the road. Does he have an obligation to obey those speed limit signs? One says yes, another yes, no. Okay. What's the consensus? Yes or no? Yes. Everybody hold up your hands. Yep. He has a reason to obey them. All right. And everybody else is no. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no. I, I don't, I'm confused. Okay, the answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is that speed limit sign is intended to oblige him to obey the speed limit for the safety of the people. The government sets up that speed limit sign for the safety of the people. The government no longer exists. They're all dead. Or they're living as mutants somewhere and they have no care about what's going on on the street, right? What I'm pointing out to here is the law requires a lawgiver to have any power at all. <coughs> In order for you to be obliged to obey the law, there must be someone to be obliged to. Right? If you're accountable, you're accountable to someone. I cannot be accountable to this chair. But I could be accountable to a God. Right? So the moral argument goes kind of like this. If there is evil, there must be good in order that we can make a distinction between the two. 
if there is good and evil, then there necessarily has to be a moral law. Because one, the law is saying one of them is good, one of them is evil. Right? There's a distinction made there, therefore there has to be a law. Since the moral law acts to oblige all mankind, it cannot be a law given by mankind. All mankind is obliged to obey the law. I'm not obliged to you to obey the law, because if that was the case, we could just change the speed limit. And we could so in other words, it wouldn't be an absolute moral law. We can change the speed limit to whatever we want it to be, right? But if we have an absolute moral law that we're obliged to obey to obey, rape, bad, right? Love, good, that kind of thing. And all mankind is obliged to obey, then the law can't come from mankind. It has to be outside mankind. So there is evil. And there is good, therefore there's a law. The law obliges all mankind, therefore it cannot come from mankind. Obligation is the kind of thing that only exists from one being to another. I'm not obligated to the chair, right? Therefore, there must be a personal moral lawgiver that is not part of mankind. Thus, in order for evil to exist, there must be a personal lawgiver that transcends mankind. I want to point out two more things and then we're done. We were talking before about the theory of relativity and how it burst the universe into existence. According to the theory of relativity, which by the way, as I said, was proven factual to five decimal points, all of time and space and matter and energy came into existence. Hey, Eric, would you go see... Um, uh, I don't know his name. Brad, thank you. I need some sleep. Brad was out there. He may want something. I don't know. Just checking. I didn't know if he was listening in or if he actually wanted something. Um, and the theory of relativity said that at the Big Bang, time, space, matter, and energy burst into existence. Think about that for a second. If something outside of time, space, matter, and energy caused the universe to come into existence, then that creator is supernatural by necessity. He's not part of the natural order. He caused the natural order and therefore is supernatural. So you are not obligated to a natural lawgiver like me or you who could change. You're obligated to a supernatural moral lawgiver. Last thing. If, I, I want you to think, I, I've been using the word absolute a lot, and it's actually a poorly chosen word. When you're talking about morality, the better words to use are objective and subjective. Did you say we have a few minutes or what? No, we're good? Okay. Objective and subjective. And the reason these are better words is because of what they correlate to. This chair is an object. And this chair, to my eyes, is blue. Right? The blue goes with the object wherever the chair goes. That's objective truth. Now, if you're colorblind, the chair doesn't appear to you to be blue. You may not be able to see blue. But that doesn't change the fact that the chair is blue. You're the subject observing the object. If you're colorblind, your subjective truth is it's not true. The object, though, holds its truth. Everywhere this chair goes, it's still blue. Regardless of who sees it, it's a blue chair. 
Does that make sense? Everybody okay with that? Rape. If it is objectively true, everywhere rape goes, or I'm sorry, if it's objectively wrong, morally wrong, everywhere rape goes, it's still wrong. Right? Murder is still wrong. If you're John Wayne Gacy and you really like to commit murder, that's your subjective experience. But if morality is true, then it's objective. Your subjective experience does not change the fact that it is objectively wrong to murder. Everyone who's killed has, the, has been the object of a murder. And wherever the murder goes, the morality goes with it because it's contained with the object or it's part of the object. Does that make sense? I see a confused look out there. Are we good? Okay. So, if morality is true, it's not my morality or your morality. It's just true. It's objectively true. Now, what you'll hear a lot of times is truth is relative. Now, of course, you can bounce that right back in your face now, you know. you say, was well, that truth relative? Maybe a more constructive way. That's what you should think in your head, but a more constructive way to handle that would be what do you mean it's relative? And what they mean is, like if I say I have a fast car, or no, let's use this. I say I'm cold and you say you're hot. So how can it be objectively true that it's cold in here if you're hot and I'm cold, right? There's a subjective experience that's going on there, right? I feel one way, you feel another way, but the room is the temperature that it is. Make sense? So all we need is a definition. We have to put it in the context of understanding what is cold. Is cold below 70 degrees? Because if it is, the room then becomes objectively cold or objectively hot. When someone says truth is relative and morality is relative, relative to what? Relative to your experience or relative to something that supersedes your experience? Ask that person, do you mind if I steal your money? Do you mind if I rape your daughter? Don't ask them that, but that's, that's, that's where you ought to go, right? In, in thought, they don't want you to do these things, right? Because they know it's wrong. It's in our hearts. We know that morality is true in our heart. We understand that, a, that morality is objective because God's placed it there. He's put, it all, he's put his law in our heart. Even in Romans 2, when it's not talking about you know, the, the New Testament, it's talking about people who don't believe and they don't know they still have a conscience, and that conscience guides them, right? We know what is right and wrong, and the people you're talking to know what is right and wrong, and they know that they're accountable, and this is key. They're accountable for that right and wrong, which is why they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to be accountable. So what you do is you say, you say it's morality is relative. Relative to what? And you point them back to the fact that morality is either right or it's wrong. It's either okay for me to rape your daughter, and it's okay for me to steal your money, or it's not. And if you know, and they do, that it's wrong to do those things, then you've got to figure out why, right? It can't be because I say so, and it can't be because you say so, because we change. James talks about uh, how God does not change like shifting shadows. His law is part of his character and it never changes and we know that in our hearts and everybody you're talking to knows that God exists and they know that morality exists you don't have to come up with some big sophisticated syllogism to prove it it's just a fact 
that morality is objective. It's part of the object, and we know it in our heart, and we know that we're accountable for it. So what we've done is we prove that God exists from creation, from design, and from morality. Now, this gets us to the God of the philosophers. It does not get us to the God of the Bible. We're, we're leaving it. We're cutting out at noon, right? Okay, so I got seven minutes to wrap everything else up. It's impossible, but we're going to give it a shot. Alright, so to get from the God that is to the God of the Bible, we have to look at how the, the different truth claims. There's a lot of different worldviews out there, right? What we figured out is the God that is is a God that has the ability to create. He has the ability to design. And he's moral. So we have a personal God. A chair cannot create, a chair cannot design, and a chair cannot have morality. You have to have personality in order to do that, right? So we have a personal God, which excludes Buddhism, Hinduism, all forms of pantheism. Also, pantheism is excluded too because you figure that God is innately part of the universe. In other words, he's in the trees, in the rock, he's in the microphone, he's everywhere, right? If you rotate the cosmic clock back, you get to a point where there is no microphone, there is no chair, there is no tree, there is no bush, then there is no God. So how does it all get started, right? So pantheism's out. The only way you get to a God, a worldview that works, is you have a God that's personal. That gives us Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And it also gives us deism. We're not going to go there right now. But you could wrap up deism and agnosticism. Let's do that. Agnosticism just says, I don't really know. It looks like something designed all this. It looks like something created this, but I don't know, so I'm just going to hold off. I would advise that that's a bad strategy because someday you're going to have to give account. But then you have to look at those different worldviews. Atheism is dead, by the way. We've proven that. And so you have Judaism and Christianity, which are essentially the same thing. Christianity is where Judaism was always going, right? The difference between a Jew and a Gentile, as far as our, uh, our religious understanding is, or I should say a Jew and a Christian, is that we believe the Jewish Messiah has come. They don't believe the Jewish Messiah has come. But the truth claims are all exactly the same. So you could assume those two together. So you have... Christianity, we'll just call it Christianity instead of Christianity and Judaism, which have Christianity over here, and you have Islam here, and you have agnosticism here. So you're down to three, right? Atheism's dead, Buddhism, Hinduism, all that's dead because we have a personal God. You're down to three. Now, in order to be able to investigate which is more accurate, Islam or Christianity, you have to look at the truth claims of those two worldviews. To do that, you have to go to their scripture. The Quran is, in, in some sense, it's well-written. It reminds me of the Psalms, where you have little tidbits of you know, beautiful phrases put together. But they're, they're in no chronological order. There's no narrative. There's no story. It's hard to follow. And it's not, it doesn't, you know, you'll be reading something, and then later on that guy it doesn't exist. Well, he was existing four pages ago. What happened to him? Well, it's not in order. And, and that goes into how it was all put together and we don't have time for all that. But the point is, it, it doesn't make any chronological sense. And then when you start to piece these things out, you find out that it contradicts the scripture, our scripture, Christianity. Now, it's interesting because they say, well, that's because the, the Bible has been corrupted. 
The question to ask when someone says that is when was it corrupted? Or what caused you to come to that conclusion? Because we can go back to the first century and go back to possibly 70 AD and we have the same Bible today as we had then. Right? You didn't even get the Quran until the 7th century. And it was put together not by Muhammad. It was put together by a bunch of other people that supposedly memorized what he said when he came out of these fits. And then when you start to break the Quran down too, you find not only does it contradict the Bible, but it contradicts itself repeatedly. And they have what's called a doctrine of abrogation that says the latter is always supersedes the former. So in other words, if God says something once and he changes his mind later and he says something different, well, the second revelation is the one you, you, you stick with, not the first one. Now, what kind of God is it that can't even figure out what he's writing, right? Uh -huh. uh, Eric's going to talk about the reliability of the Bible next. And you're going to see that putting those two together is just, it, it's, especially when we start to look at, at prophecy, it becomes stupid. There's, there's only one prophecy in, in uh, the Quran, and it has to do with the time that he lived, right? So he's making a prophecy about something that happened while he was there, so it's kind of hard to, especially since he didn't write it, people wrote it afterwards, you know, it only got into print after it already happened, so that kind of thing is just seems kind of silly, but we're, we're looking at prophecies in the Bible that happened hundreds and hundreds of years, even thousands in some cases, you know, before they actually happened, and we can prove, we can go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and prove that they happened, or that they were prophesied before they happened. That, by the way, is how you disprove agnosticism. And this is what I was talking about when I said, we, when we were talking about Immanuel Kant, and how Immanuel Kant said we can't get to God from here because we can't necessarily reason by the laws of this natural order what's happening in the unnatural world, in the non-physical world. These laws here, law of cause and effect, remember, that may not actually apply in the unnatural world. That's what, what Kant was saying. Well, I think this proves that we don't have to get there. God has come here. He's given us a revelation that is not only provable archaeologically and scientifically and everything else you can dream up, but it's also by prophecy proven. Now, if it's by prophecy, you have something, some entity, foretelling to you what's going to happen, which would be, by necessity, having knowledge of something that is outside the natural realm, outside of time, which is equal to space and matter and energy, right? Outside of time. You stand outside of time and tell you what's going to happen in the future. That has to be a supernatural entity. So again, you have, once you, once you figure out you have a personal God, you realize that you only have three choices. You have Christianity, Islam, and agnosticism. The Quran up against the Bible is not even a fair comparison. The Bible has prophecy in it. Prophecy cannot be explained in the natural world, so therefore it has to be supernatural. So agnosticism doesn't really work. The Bible seems to say that there is a God, and that God is the God of the Bible. Does that make sense? All right, we have one minute. Are there any questions before we go to lunch? If y'all want to uh, just answer Calvinism and Arminianism, we'll just sit right here. We got a minute. <laughs> All right, if there's no questions. Oh. What did you call it where, uh, in the Quran that, that belief where it's, it's superseded by new revelation? Abrogation. Abrogation. It's the doctrine of abrogation. It's interesting that Jesus said that the scriptures cannot be broken. That's right. You know, so with our old New Testament, obviously, it's what it is. Yeah. I thought I heard somewhere that Muhammad was illiterate. 
Right. So what, what was supposedly happening was Muhammad was going into a cave and he was having these, uh, what we would call today, epileptic fits. And when he would wake up from his fit, um, and by the way, they were trying to restrain him so he didn't hurt himself. When he would wake up for his fit, from his fit, he would have some, some revelation that he'd want to share. And you'd have people sitting there trying to memorize it as he said it, or they would be writing it down. And it's one of the tests, supposedly, for the Quran. They're saying, well, you had an illiterate man that wrote it. Well, there are a lot of people that can't read but can speak, right? And that's what he was doing. He was speaking the Quran. They were writing it down. And then some 70 years later, uh, people tried to put all the little pieces together. They called in all the pieces that memorized, people that memorized stuff. And they brought together all the scraps that people had written on leaves and stuff like that. And they slammed it all together in one book. And that's how we have the Quran. And that's why the Quran doesn't seem to make any sense when you read it through. Kind of like as I was saying, the Psalms. I'm not saying Psalms is not a good book to read, but you're not going to get a story reading through the Psalms, right? You'll get a verse, and then you'll get another verse, and then you get another verse, and another verse. And there's, there's, there's at times seemingly no connection one to another. The same thing is true of the Quran. All right, you guys got to go. We're one minute past. If y'all have any questions, you can, you can stay and ask, but I do need to dismiss you. Dismiss you. We'll pick up with the Bible at uh, 12.30. And you can get up here. I'm not sure how it's laid out downstairs. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. how Joel Osteen can say that. Joel Osteen didn't submit himself to anything. So no, he's. You got to remember, Joel Osteen was was, and I believe it was on ABC. I don't know if it was Martin Bashir. Somebody pinpointed him and said, "Is Jesus the only way?" And the response was, can I get back to you on that? I mean, yeah, I think you're right. It was Larry King. Can I get back to you on that? You know, and, or Rob Bell, you know, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, about that in a minute, you know, that, uh, that he was put on the stand with, and that was with Martin Bashir on uh, uh, the evening news or the evening, what do you call that after? It comes after the Channel 8 news. Yeah, ABC didn't, you know, yeah. And, uh, and he asked him, he said, look, because, uh, you know, he wrote a book about suffering and all that, and Martin Bashir asked him, okay, this God that you believe in, he, he's either, and this is a traditional argument, is he's either not omnipotent, because he could stop it, right? If he's, if he's omnipotent, like you're saying, he could stop it. Or he's not good, where he can stop it, but chooses not to, right? And so Martin Bashir <clears throat> said, which is it? And yeah, he, he's like, he, he totally skirted around. I mean, he had a great opportunity to talk about the problem of evil, right? And, and we'll get to that, you know. But uh, he just totally, you know, and he was asked a similar question about is Jesus the only way? And it's, it's kind of the same thing. Well, you know, I mean, it's, if, if your faith, at least right now, is, is the place where you're like, you know, I'm not sure, okay? And, uh, you need to question whether you're even saved, first and foremost, okay? Uh, you, you ought to be dogmatic about it. No, absolutely. But it's not because I say it's that way, right? It's because he testified it, and we're going to look at that, uh, the claims of Scripture and so on. So, okay. Well, let's pick it up. You're going to be on page 13, and we're looking at the Bible and whether or not it's a reliable piece of revelation, uh, certainly of, of God. Um, you know, Ken demonstrated that God does exist. Um, he, you know, 
we ran out of time, but he, had, he went from, okay, the God that exists, is he the God of the Bible? Okay, because we, we reduced it down to Judeo-Christianity um, uh, and Islam, right? Because everything else is, is outside the scope of a, a personal God, right? So, um, and he pretty much showed that, uh, the, real quickly, that uh, the Quran is not a reliable source of information because it contradicts itself over and over leaving just the Bible. So, is the Bible reliable? And what's interesting, and you probably remember this uh, in reading through uh, your New Testament, especially the Gospels, that Jesus was posed with a question, okay, from Pontius Pilate. Do you remember what it was? Oh, it says, what is truth? What is truth? Okay. And really, and why we're looking at is truth knowable, um, if you can't even ascertain that truth is noble, that you can establish a foundation, then the argument's over about whether it be the Bible or any other book, religious book or philosophical book. If truth can't be known, then we're just wasting our time. I mean, it's, let's just jump out the window, okay? Because that's, that's really all you're left with, right? Um, but what is truth is the question that uh, Pilate posed to Jesus when the Jewish leaders took him to the Roman governor. And, and today there are many skeptics who believe that truth is not knowable, believe it or not, uh, or that truth is only relevant to the individual or particular society. I mean, you can go into the university classrooms today and find a professor that would say that what the Nazis did to the Jews was fine, okay? Because what they, to the Nazis in that culture, which, you know, if truth, since truth is not absolute, it becomes relative, and in that culture, it was fine for everybody to do that. So therefore, what they did, we, we can't stand up here and say that was wrong. Because morality standpoint, a true standpoint, since it can't be known, we can't judge what they did, right? Uh, I know, when you hear that, you're like, are you insane? You know, no one would ever believe that. Well, no, they do. At least they teach it, all right? Because nobody believe, truly believes that truth is relative. They might say it. They might say, you know, there are no absolutes, which, as Kennedy touched on, is already a self-defeating argument, right? Because isn't that an absolute statement? If you say there are no absolutes, all right, you said there are none, so there can't be any. That's an absolute statement. Therefore, it's self-defeating, right? Okay. Um, but people who hold that view are not consistent with it. I'll give you an example. You got a busy street going right here with all kinds of cars. If they were consistent with their beliefs. Even if they see the car is there, it's like, really, the car might not be there. I mean, it probably isn't, you know. It could be a figment of my imagination. Um, and just step out, okay. Or that, you know, gravity, oh, here's one. Uh, my first year at TCJC, right out of Burleson High School, um, took a, uh, a history class, U.S. history. And this professor was just trying to make a point. It wasn't actually anything about history or whatever. He just wanted to tout his beliefs or philosophies and so on. And he grabbed, we don't have an eraser, but we'll use this pen. Yeah, it's got an eraser on the end, that'll work. Uh, and he grabbed this, and he dropped it. And he asked the class, what made that fall? Well, let me ask you, what made it fall? Gravity. Okay. Of course, that's, that's the same response we all did. I said, how do you know gravity did that? <coughs> well, what's the scientific method tell you to do? 
do it again, do it a million times. If it's consistent, even though you may not see what's there, you can at least assign a name to it. In this case, we do gravity. But he said, how do you know it's not an angel or an invisible alien? Do you know for sure? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, but uh, but also that you know an angel meaning that it was somebody being consistent, pushing it down every time, same speed, same you know, every time. How do you know? And of course, it leaves you with. I mean, I don't know. Okay, you know, obviously, but yet, uh, you know, because I can't see in the invisible world. But but you see where he's going. He's he's trying to say that. Well, see, all truth relative. And what you know, you really don't know. Right, um, but again, people like that are not consistent, because if that's the case, then maybe that angel or space <laughs> alien that's invisible won't push me down this time when I step out the window, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe you'll get lucky, right? But anyhow, um, you know, this reduces any notion of truth to the level of personal experience or simply relativism. You know, why is it important to understand the nature of truth and that it can be knowable? You'll see a quote there, unless truth is real, it would make no sense to offer truth or true answers about the Christian faith. And that comes from Norman Geisler and his books back there. I mean, seriously, if truth can't be known, then we're wasting our time telling people about Jesus, right? Because you can't ascertain whether that's true or not. Um, now, uh, listen to what Jesus said. You know, why is it important? Jesus said, your word is truth, John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If truth is not knowable, then these statements, as well as the entire Bible, are meaningless conjecture, right? In a nutshell, truth is simply expressing information the way it really is. That's what truth is. It's just telling things the way it is. Now, of course, that requires you to be grounded in reality, right? Uh, and not, you know, fanciful ideas of aliens pushing down erasers onto the floor. But, I mean, you and I both know that two plus two is always what? Four. It's always four. Will it ever be sometimes three and a half? Will it ever sometimes be four and a half? It's always going to be four. That's true, right? And it's always true. And you know what? It's true whether you go to Mars and find that computer, okay? It's true whether you go to, uh, you know, any time in our ancient past or into the future, it's always going to be the same. Um, the argument that truth is unknowable or is self-defeating. For if truth is unknowable, how do you know that it's unknowable, right? It's getting into one of those logical word twisters, right? And kind of puzzles the mind. But nonetheless, uh, you know, with that being said, we'll make the assumption that we, again, we are grounded in reality and uh, determine whether the Bible is a reliable source of truth. So truth can be known, um, and now what we're going to do is see that, that the Bible is the truth. Uh, before we can discuss the reliability of the Bible, though, we need to understand what it is. Okay, And without question, it's the chief revelation of God, to, uh, certainly to the Christian, uh, his existence, attributes, but also it's the primary source of truth for us. Uh, and it's through the Bible that we not only understand more clearly who God is, but how to please him. And that's most important, obviously. We do all that we do to glorify God, right? Um, now, the Bible is a collection of 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, by approximately 40 authors 
Over how long? About 1,500 years. Um, it was written in three original languages. Uh, you have Hebrew, which is the majority of the Old Testament. Uh, there are some scatterings of Aramaic uh, in Ezra, uh, as well as in uh, Jeremiah and Daniel. Um, and then the New Testament, and I say there it's all uh, in, in Koine Greek, which is common Greek. Okay, you've heard the word koinonia, right? Which is used for fellowship or commonness. Um, there are some, uh, let's see, I believe it's uh, the Gospel of Mark, or is it, I know it's Matthew, and of course the book of Hebrews was thought to be written in Hebrew originally and then translated into Greek. Um, but I'm not, I don't know uh, all the details on that, so. Um, but suffice it to say, the, the, the manuscripts we have today that have circulated over the last 2,000, nearly 2,000 years are all in Greek. Okay. Um, the construction of the Bible, you see the Old Testament, you got the law, uh, which of course would be the, the Torah. Um, you got history, poetry, major prophets and minor prophets. And incidentally, what's the difference between a major and minor prophet? Any ideas? I mean, is Ezekiel... Just a better prophet than Hosea, you know, is, is Malachi just, you know, or Malachi, the Italian uh, prophet, um, you know, not as great as Isaiah or Ezekiel or anybody else. What's the difference is the volume they wrote, okay, the, the amount of words they penned. That, that's the real difference. And so it's just that when you read something uh, uh, about the Bible and you see the major prophets, minor prophets, that's all it's talking about is the big books versus the smaller books okay and then of course the new testament we got the gospels we got history which would be the book of acts you got the pauline epistles those penned by paul uh, you have the general epistles and of course it's from you know peter uh, also john um, uh, james and so on and then you got prophecy which would be the book of revelation so that's how it's constructed those are the languages now what types of bible we just kind of touched on that a minute ago you got your translations and uh, remember I told you that that coach I talked about uh, said, you know, I don't want to believe the Bible and what it has to say because it's just been translated and translated and translated and translated and so pretty much the whole meaning has been lost in translation. And, you know, that's an absurd, actually, conjecture just because, well, one, it's not true, but I can go today to the British Museum, you can go to the Vatican, and you can go to other uh, museums and also universities and find the ancient Greek manuscripts that have been used for our translations. Okay, so uh, the King James Version, which was published in 1611, uh, was translated from the Greek, uh, actually what's called the majority text, but um, New King James Version, also a translation, but they kept the flavor of the King James uh, language. You get the New American Standard, which is more of a literal translation, and you have a NIV, which may, many of you use, which is more of a thought-for-thought, thought, or what's called a dynamic translation, okay? It's not going word-for-word, word, it's capturing the thought, right? Um, I studied German primarily, because my wife's from German, Germany. Um, don't let her lack of an accent fool you. Uh, she's a native speaker. Um, but, uh, To say, oh, translation. Okay, I would not. Uh, when I speak German, I'm not going to think. Uh, actually, when I get myself in trouble, is when I'm thinking in English and translating word for word, then trying to mix it up. Right? It doesn't work very well. Okay. 
What works better when communicating, just simple communication, is dynamic translation. You say it this way, well in English we say it this way. Okay, and that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to use the way you say it and your culture is familiar with instead of trying to go word. Yeah, if I go word for word, I'm going to understand more often than not, but it's going to be choppy, right? So you got your translations, you also got your paraphrases. Um, the Living Bible is an example of a paraphrase. You want to be careful about getting your theology and uh, your belief system uh, or even your Christian worldview from paraphrases because all that is is somebody went in, read Genesis 1-1, and then gave their own kind of like little interpretation and then rewrote it. Okay, it's almost like a, a linear commentary where they just keep commenting through the whole thing in a sense, right? And then you got your false translations and we just touched on that a minute ago about the New World Translation, which if you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness, what's interesting, what you can tell them is that, you know, why is it that for the first 50 years of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society that you used the King James Bible? I mean, if it's so bad and we should all be having this New World Translation, why did Judge Rutherford and C.T. Russell and all the rest, and all your church presidents, why they use it? And you went door to door with it. What, what changed? Okay. Well, what changed was the fact that people started getting a little more wise in their biblical understanding and started reading the scriptures so that when the people knocking on the doors were coming, that the Watchtower people could no longer defend what it was they were teaching. Right. And so they had to come up with their own translation. So they'd use, and I believe they're using, uh, uh, there's two general uh, groups of texts when it comes to the, the Greek, trans, uh, Greek Bible. You get the majority text where there's more manuscripts, but they're uh, not as old, okay? And we're gonna get on the age of manuscripts and the importance of that in just a minute. And then you have fewer manuscripts over in this camp but they're much older, okay? And I believe they base theirs off the, the older, what's called the majority text. But no Greek scholar in the world, unless they're Jehovah's Witness, okay? Uh, which, then they wouldn't be a scholar. Um, but no language, I mean, you go to Oxford, you go to other big universities uh, where they do translations and they keep up with the ancient languages, they would never come up with what is found in the New World Translation, okay? I mean, they deliberately leave stuff out and add stuff to make it fit, okay? So whatever verse she quoted to you, whatever you can, more than likely just take it, you know, that it's wrong, okay? Um, but, I, you know, it's not wrong because I say it's wrong. You, you still got to figure that out. But what's interesting is that Walter Martin, when he had his radio broadcast uh, many before he passed away, I remember him saying... And this isn't an insult to you or me or anybody, but it's, it's just to let the church know, I mean, study. Show yourself approved, just like we're told, okay? Because, as he said, the average, no, the, a Jehovah's Witness can make a doctrinal pretzel out of the average Christian in five minutes, okay? In five minutes. You'll be at the door going, oh, you know, and I've done it too, okay? I've sat there with the... You know, but that's not what he means, you know? It's like, well, it says right here, you know? And then you're like, oh no, okay. Um, really, just with careful Bible study um, and then studying, reading books like that to find out where they err in their uh, understanding of the scriptures and so on, um, you actually be able to help them. And it, again, man, we talked about apologetics, it's chipping away at, we, we, we looked at it uh, uh, with Ken primarily with dealing with the atheists and agnostics and the various philosophers, right? Uh, here we got to use it with those that we uh, that call themselves Christians, okay, and bring them back to reality for the same purpose because 
the Jehovah's Witness, if they truly believe what is being taught and espoused by the Watchtower organization, they really believe that, then they're just as lost as the atheist and agnostic or the, the professor at the university or anybody else, okay? You gotta remember what Jesus said. He said to the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am, you are lost in your sins. And so when you start messing with the nature of Christ and who he is, your salvation's on the line, okay? Um, all right, you should be on page 14. And now, how do we know the Bible is reliable? I mean, there's many books in the world claiming, okay, to have divine origin. The Quran, for instance, the Book of Mormon, uh, for example. But what can we find that would demonstrate that the Bible we possess today is consistent with the original autographs of the authors? Now, what does it mean, original autograph? What do you think that means? It's, it's probably not a picture signed by somebody, okay? But what do you think it means? You're talking about the, the books of the Bible, the original autographs. What do you think that means? Steve? It's the original manuscript that Paul penned, or, you know, Paul's secretary penned, but um, that Paul penned. Now, there are some evidences where actually Paul wrote something. See, I'm doing it with my own hand, okay? But usually, they would use someone to write for them as they spoke the words, okay? And um, the original autographs are those actual documents, the ones that were penned either by them or right there in their presence as they spoke what to put down, okay? And, uh, you know, the Bible, we, ha we, we don't have those manuscripts, at least not knowingly, okay? We don't have one that says, actually, this is the one that was penned by Paul. See here, he made a little more. We don't have that. Um, all we have are multiple copies, and we'll see those numbers here in just a minute. We have multiple copies of those. Um, so if you have multiple copies, how do we know that what we have is, the, you know, based on the original, that it's a divinely inspired? You know, after a careful look at the facts, one must conclude that the Bible is, at worst, a truly remarkable document, okay? And at best, it's the written word of God, okay? Either way you slice it, this thing's special. Um, now, as far as textual reliability, you got a quote there. One must listen to the claims of the document under consideration or analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inerrancies. Um, and I might touch on this again later. Give you an example what, of that quote in practice. The Book of Mormon claims that there were vast societies here in the United States, of course not called the United States back then, right? But vast societies with all kinds of buildings, um, I mean metropolises basically, even that they had animals like elephants, okay, in the North Americas, right? Well guess what? Here it is uh, 150 plus years since Joseph Smith penned his works, right? And still you might find some arrowheads, you might find some pottery here and there for various tribes of Indians that lived here, indigenous people, but you don't find any evidence of these vast societies, you know, like the Incas or somebody like that here in the United States, right? Oh, and you don't find elephants either, you know, unless they escaped from that zoo that's in the I Am Legend movie and somehow got there, but anyhow. Um, now, the New Testament has been the subject of more scrutiny than any other ancient set of documents. Um, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is by far the most solid ancient document in existence. Uh, but even the New Testament has more copies of manuscripts, though not the original autographs, than any other non-biblical document. 
um, and the copies are date closer in time to the originals than any others. And now, uh, real quick, I'll just look at Homer. You'll see the chart. You got Homer's Iliad, and you've probably heard of the Iliad or Homer's Odyssey. Um, you see that it was written 800 BC, but in, in the earliest copies that we have are from 400 BC. So you have a 400 year time gap from the time that he wrote to the time that we actually have a, a, an existing copy of what he wrote. Not the original, but a copy. Sorry? 1200. Well, it's 800 BC to 400 BC. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm That's okay. Uh, forgive me. I'm asleep. That's right. Um, and look at the number of copies. There's 643 copies of the, that manuscript for that book. Okay. Now look down at the New Testament. You know, by the time that we have the complete, now there's fragments that date within the first 50 years to 100 years, right? And, uh, but as far as the complete New Testament, we had that in, in AD 325. That's only 225 years from the time it was penned that we have the, you know, the complete canon of copies of those manuscripts. And look how many there are. 5,600, you know, over, 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 excuse me, 5,000, over 5,300 manuscripts out there that have been used to compile and put together. Um, why do you think it'd be important? I mean, here you have a timeline, and let's just say, you know, 30 AD. You know, and here you have, let's say, 500 BC, excuse me, AD, going the wrong way, you know, in the 2000s. Why would it be important to have manuscripts that we use that are based in, you know, maybe from this time period versus somewhere in here? Why do you think it'd be important to have manuscripts that are, you know, closer to the originals when the originals were penned? Why do you, why do you think? Eyewitness corroboration. Okay. What do you mean by that? Some people who were still alive when those things were written, and if they were incorrect, they wouldn't be able to refute what's being written. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. Because um, the, the closer you get, the, in, in, and on top of that, textual problems, in other words, copying problems, the farther out you get and the older the manuscripts get, is the more times it's been copied and copied, the more chances there are for mistakes, right? But the closer you get to the original, the less chance. You know, think of telef the telephone game, you pass the note around, you know, kind of like that. Well, same idea for, for written text. Um, the farther you get away from the originals, the more chance there is for mistakes. Okay? And so, when you look at the Bible, um, from the fragments all the way to the books and, and the complete New Testament, um, you're much closer than any other ancient respected, okay, document. Right? And all these ones here are respected, and some of you have heard you know, as far as Plato and then Homer, uh, there's others there too. So, um, the other uh, thing that I, I would say would support the reliability of the Bible is just the odds. You know, we've already touched on it before, but just the odds, the fact that you have these 66 books, I mean, the multiple authors, you would think you would have complete uh, uh, contradictions, one from another, okay? But you don't. You do have the Gospels being different, right? but they don't contradict one another. Where one may say there were two angels at the tomb, one may say there was an angel at the tomb, does that necessarily contradict? It would if it said there was only one angel at the tomb, right? And especially if it's referring to the same, okay, event, right? But it doesn't do that. 
maybe whoever was seeing what was going on, they only observed. Remember, we, you've probably heard it explained that the four Gospels are like four people standing on a street corner on each side of a street, and you have a car accident. Well, you can all testify the same thing. Two cars hit each other, right? And on this side, you see a guy injured, and he's, you know, limping off, right? You don't see the guy on the other side is dead, but the, the people on the other side of the street do. Um, now, if people on the other side of the street said there was only one person injured and he happened to die, and the people on the other side of the street said nobody died, then you would have a contradiction. But they don't, in regards to the New Testament, you don't hear it, see it saying, well, there was only this or only that. You see it saying, you know, hey, there were two there and there was one here. Okay, just a different perspective. I was standing, just happened to be standing over here at the time, right? So, um, you know, and the, so the, the story from Genesis to Revelation is consistent. The story of God's redemption. We're on page 15. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before? Yes. What do you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? That what we have now in our translations is the same as it is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That nothing's changed. Yeah, up in time, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a place called Qumran. And there were a, a group of Jews, uh, Essenes, I forget how you say what they are, but um, they kind of camped out in some of the deserty areas of that region and uh, they stored their books. Now, I don't know what, how they died, whether it was the Romans that came after them, whatever, but they stored uh, books of the Bible and some other apocryphal works too, but they stored them in these caves. And one day, I think it was like 1948 if I'm not mistaken, there was a shepherd boy out there and he was throwing rocks, you know, in the different caves, you know, up on the hillside and all that. You know, what happens when you throw rocks on rocks? What do you hear? You know, clang, 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 you know, when the rocks are thunk, you know, oh that's weird, you know, and so an investigation found these uh, documents, uh, scrolls that were uh, bound together like with leather and straps and all that, very well preserved because it was so dry in that area, right? Turns out they had the entire book of Isaiah on a scroll that I think was like 28 feet long um, and so that goes back like uh, two centuries before Christ up until that time, the, the, the earliest Isaiah document we had was like, I believe, 900 A.D., okay? And when you compare the two, even though they're separated by some over a thousand years, they're virtually identical, okay? So, again, giving uh, support to the textual um, accuracy of, of the copies that were made over the time. Um, and then, of course, just... Like we were talking about, or Kim was talking about with the science and everything, and just logic and reasoning and things making sense, right? And I touched on a little bit this a bit ago. The history and archaeology of the Bible, the peoples, tribes, geography, and everything else check out as valid. World history, for instance, okay, um, uh, is supported by what you find in the Bible. We know there was... Um, uh, a leader of the Babylonians called Nebuchadnezzar, right? We know that Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time when Jesus was born. And these are facts that are stuck in Scripture, so there's no way to say it's just all, you know, great societies in the Americas, but no proof. Elephants in Texas, you know, whatever you, however you want to say it. Um, 
But when you look at the Bible, these are these they check out. These are regions I can go to. There is a Dead Sea, right? Um, now, where, where would we looked at that quote earlier about considering the document and, and not assuming it has errors unless it gives you a reason to have errors? You know, the quote by Montgomery. Um, now, if the Bible said that the Dead Sea flows into the Sea of Galilee, would we have a problem with that? Wouldn't that be a contradiction? Absolutely, because it flows the other way. The Jordan flows from the north to the south. It flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, right? So, um, but everything checks out, and it's not like the others. I already mentioned the Book of Mormon, um, and you know we we have that support through uh, history and archaeology, and you know it's it's interesting how archaeology proves or shows the Bible as accurate. There was a time, actually, for I believe it was for. 1900 years, and Ken, you may remember, when was it that up until that time Pontius Pilate was not known? That no one could prove there was actually a Pontius Pilate other than in the Gospels? Yeah, it was about 1970 when uh, archaeology really started taking off, and Sir William Ramsey went over there and really started the movement. Right, and so there was a Colosseum found in the, I believe it was in the Galilee region, but it was, up until that time, the skeptics, German higher critics, right, um, we're saying, well, there was no Pontius Pilate. There's no evidence of a Pontius Pilate. Never has been. Okay, it's it's just made up. Um, well, then they find there's this call a small Colosseum with the inscription to Pontius Pilate, dedicated to Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, you know, in, in whatever year. And so, archaeology um, is just showing what we already know that the Bible is um, a reliable source of truth. You also see the testimony of the apostles. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? And it's profitable for doctrine and so on. Um, and you'll see Peter, Peter, the scripture referencing Peter. You know, these were men who saw something happen. They saw the resurrected Christ. They couldn't deny that. All right? And they wrote about it. Um, and they were martyred for it. And I, and I think we'll touch on this later on, uh, but nobody knowingly dies for a lie. I mean, you might convince somebody from the time they're a, a, a child, okay, that, and, and keep teaching them over and over over things that will eventually lead them to flying an airplane into a building, right? But if they knew at the time they were flying the airplanes that, you know what, all that stuff they've been teaching is not true. That, Everything I've been learning here is not true. You think they'd still do it? You think they'd still, you know what, it's not true, but hey, let's just go have some fun, kill ourselves, you know? It's not going to happen. People don't die for uh, a lie knowingly. They, die, they can be deceived, but they're not going to knowingly, and, and also when you think about the logic of it, you would never get the morality that we have within the Christian faith, right, if it began on a lie. I mean, it's just it's not going to happen. You start out on a lie, you're going to end up on a lie, or more lies. But you're not going to come out, you know, it's kind of like the uh, exploding chair, and you wind up with this neighborhood, okay? Well, if you base your faith on a lie, and it's all about a lie, and you know it's a lie, you're not going to wind up with this ordered, structured uh, moral compass, if you will, 
Okay, you're going to wind up with chaos, you're going to wind up with immorality, you're going to wind up with all kinds of stuff besides uh, morality. You also see the order, orderly layout of those who are close to the apostles. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, a companion of Peter in Rome, and Luke, a physician, and beloved traveling companion of Paul, and you see the scripture, uh, it's in Luke uh, 1 and Acts 1, uh, and you consider Luke's use of the historical figures. So he talked about uh, Quirinius of Syria. He also mentions Caesar Augustus, another historical figure um, to look back on and say, you know what, this is actually written and this, these things took place at an actual time in real locations. And then to know that what we have uh, is or are good copies of what the apostles tried to say, or I shouldn't say tried to say, but did say, um, in their writings, you have the, the testimony of the church fathers. You can see Justin Marty, you've probably heard of his name. Uh, you got Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tertullian, uh, Eusebius, these other early, these are guys from back in the you know uh, uh, second, third, fourth centuries. Well, they're, they have writings themselves where they taught their disciples, and those writings were captured, okay, and recorded, and they quote from the, from the Bible. And their quotes match up with the manuscripts that we have. So clearly what they had back then and what we have today, they match, right? And then of course, really the, uh, and, and we don't have time to really develop this because the, the Bible is full of prophecies, as Kim was talking about early on, um, that have come true and that you can pinpoint and say, looky here, I mean, you either have to make the argument that, and again, I, I keep pointing back to the German higher critics, um, but it's not just them, it's the skeptics today. You would have to say that the book of Daniel, which completely outlines the going from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, and he wrote all that during the time of the Babylonians. Okay, and now during that time the Medo-Persians came into power too, but he had already penned the fact and told Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what's going to happen. You're worried about your empire. Guess what? Your empire is not going to last forever. Sorry, but it's not going to happen. It's going to fall over to the Medo-Persians. And then when God's done with the Medo-Persians, it's going to fall over to the Greeks. When God's done with how he's going to use the Greeks, it follows over to the Romans. Uh, which, incidentally, it's not mentioned here, you know, and, and I believe it's Galatians 4, where it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay? In the fullness of time, it's the perfect time. I mean, think about this. At the time of Christ, and certainly as, as Christian, Christianity began to, to explode, what did you have? There, there are two things in particular you had that you couldn't ask for better timing. You had a common language. Right? What was the common trade language used throughout the known world? Greek. Okay. What did the Romans build besides Colosseums and stuff? What did the Romans build? Roads. Roads, right? Roads that held up in all weather. So you have a common language, and you have roads that can take you and that common language anywhere. Right? And so talk about perfect timing for God sending forth his son. I mean you get a sovereign God aligning everything just perfectly uh, to bring about the gospel. Just, if you see the fulfilled prophecy, you got Daniel's prophecies uh, of the change in world governing empires, uh, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and so on. Uh, you have Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus, you have his virgin birth. Uh, 
you have uh, born in Bethlehem. He'd be from Nazareth. He'd come out of Egypt. He'd be rejected by those he came to, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which were also used to buy a potter's field. Okay? Prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. And so, fulfilled prophecy, and these, and these are just a handful, okay? Um, but there's uh, just all kinds of evidence supporting. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but the skeptics will say, well, it must have been written after the fact. I mean, okay. Now, what does the church believe about the scriptures? There's a fancy word called verbal plenary, or fancy words called verbal plenary inspiration. Basically what that is, is that every word is God-breathed. And you see that where Paul says that in 2 Timothy 3.16, and Peter refers to it in 2 Peter. Also the church believes that the, the Bible is inerrant. What that means that God's word has no errors. Now where we have to be careful here is you have to believe that from the original autograph standpoint. Okay, because can you find errors? I mean... You know, if you compare this, the, the Greek manuscripts that this one's based on, which is the majority text, and you look at the minority text, which would be the older, but fewer, okay, um, are there errors? It's okay to speak your mind. There are typos. I mean, you would say there's spelling errors, uh, and the reason why you say there's spelling errors, and that's, that's an easy <coughs> one to get over, just because um, how you, there was no dictionary back then. Right, uh, and how you pronounce something, you just spelled it the way it sounded. Well, what if your dialect's a little bit different? What if you're from New York and a guy from Texas? Okay, uh, you're, you're going to have it spelled a different way just because you speak it a different way, right? Um, but you do have things like the last chapter of Mark. Most of the last chapter of Mark is not in the older manuscripts. Okay, it is in the younger ones. Okay, but not in the older ones. Um, so it's a question of, okay, was it there to begin with, right? Well, when you compare all the manuscripts, those 5,300 we talked about a minute ago, when you look at every single one of them, you don't have contradictions. You may have omissions or you may have additions, okay, but you don't have contradictions. It, when comparing them all together, you have a document that's 99.5% accurate to what the originals were. Okay, and that they're comparing that 0.5 to just all the discrepancies, where it's like a little bit different here, and it's not right here, you're missing a word here, this part of the chapter is not there. But for an ancient document, the modern Bible that we have, I mean, that's insane. You know, when you compare the others, right, um, it doesn't even come close. So. The Bible is, uh, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, every word is God-breathed, we believe it's inerrant, and we also believe it's infallible, meaning that it cannot err in the original of it. Not only does it not have an error, it cannot err. And that's important, and we'll see why. Why does it matter? Christians must hold to the verbal plenary view of Scripture as there are several things at stake. Number one, or I should say number A, uh, the character of God's at stake. In Psalm 138, it says that God puts his word above his name. And we all know the name of God, or, you know, the, the, the Ken mentioned earlier the tetragrammaton, the YHVH or YHWH, depending on what you're looking at, which essentially is the I am, okay, out of the Hebrew. Um, and God must always be regarded as holy, especially his name. Don't take his name in vain, right? 
So when he says, I elevate my word, or it's his word is respected above his name, okay, that's telling you right there that his character is at stake if there's something wrong with the, the Bible that we hold, okay? Um, also, it matters because how are you going to know how you're saved? We've got to have a reliable source of information here. We've got to know that there's not an error when it's certainly when it's talking about, okay, are we saved by grace through faith? Or did the death of Christ just take care of my sins up to the point that I believed, and now I'm responsible for uh, taking care of the rest? Okay, whether I camp down in purgatory for a few millennia or whether I, you know, uh, rely on Christ to take care of that for me. I was speaking facetiously there, in case you know, I do not believe in purgatory. So, um, It's also important for our sanctification. You know, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, if the Bible is not reliable, a reliable source of revelation, that is the, the, the God that is, you know, uh, is the God of the Bible, it becomes important because our sanctification depends on it. We need to become more like him. Be holy as I am holy, for instance. And if you don't take the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation as the word of God, you've got another problem on your hands. Can you tell me which part isn't or which part is God's word? Right? So if you don't take it from cover to cover that way, you're not going to know which part is and which part isn't. There's actually groups, theologians out there, who do just that. You know, they'll go through and they'll say, nah, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand that, so that, that can't be God's word. You know, and, and this part, oh, this part is, well, it's usually when it matches up with what they like or what they believe, oh, that part's God's word, right? Um, who else does that? What, what cult does that? Well, there's a lot of them, I guess you could say, that do it, but one has it actually in their 12 tenets of their belief. It's the Mormons. The Bible is the word of God so far as it's correctly what? Translated, right? And so, guess what? When you go over a Bible passage or you have a Mormon come to your door and what you're saying isn't matching up with Mormon theology, guess who's got the problem? You do. Your Bible's not translated properly. Now, they, they, they leave that one kind of alone now because people have gotten pretty good about understanding their Bible and, and that you have multiple... Uh, languages where the, the Greek has been translated. You know, you can take the Luther Bible, you can take the English Bible, you can take the Russian Bible on a given verse, and they're all saying the same thing. Okay? So, it's really not a valid... They try to use it, and it's actually in their uh, 12 points of what they believe, but it's not a valid argument. So, uh, I gave you a Hebrew 4 reference, and that's where the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, do, to discern the hearts uh, and intents of the heart, and so on. Um, and then, lastly... Uh, everyone will be left to their own authority and, or worse, uh, to their own sinfulness. Now, your next page, uh, or next part of the, the page you have, and then the next, next one after that, has all kinds of questions and takeaways. If we have time afterward, um, we can go through that if you'd like. Um, one thing you need to realize about your Bible is that it is full of literary devices. Okay? Even though it's, you say it's God's Word, and I see head bobbins, that turkey sandwich is really kicking in. Um, but it's, it's still a literary, it's a, it's a book, it's written, it's written in, in a language, it has meaning. We talked about the, the, the DNA, okay, or you talk about language, it's got a pattern to it, okay, there's thought behind it. Well, with that, there are idiomatic expressions, with that, there are metaphors. I mean, by the skin of your teeth, what do you mean, I don't have skin in my teeth, what are you talking about, you know? 
I mean, there's metaphors being used. Um, and I think if you understand that, you're able to read your Bible with a lot more, um, well, intellect, I guess you could say, or, or, or uh, thought behind it and get really to the, the meaning of it, uh, of, of a given passage. So let's take just uh, about five minutes, and then we're going to get into uh, Jesus, who is he, God and man, and uh, we'll come back to it. <laughs>